the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The controversial Trans Mountain expansion project was approved this past week for a second time by the federal Liberals. It's designed to carry nearly a million barrels of oil from Alberta's oil patch to the B.C. coast each day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was out in front trying to balance his image as an environmental steward with economic realities as we head into an election. He also committed to directing all of the money the government earns from the pipeline, estimated at about a half a billion dollars a year, to investments in unspecified clean energy projects. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is casting doubts about whether Trudeau actually wants the pipeline built, as well as his sincerity about supporting the energy industry. Green Party leader Elizabeth May called the move an example of cynicism and hypocrisy at a level that is quite breathtaking. Taking. Elizabeth May joined Libby Snymer to discuss. If anyone had told me in the 2015 election that Justin Trudeau would be announcing that the government of Canada is about to spend public resources estimated at between nine and 13 billion dollars to build a pipeline after Kinder Morgan walked away with it with 4.5 billion in their pockets for selling us the 65 year old pipeline that they initially bought here. I just wouldn't have believed it. It would have sounded so um, uh, unlikely as to be um, implausible for, for instance, a political satirical work. You would say, this can't happen. But here we are with a government that claims that we're in a climate emergency, uh, announcing that we're going to spend public money to increase greenhouse gases. You've characterized this almost as a personal betrayal. Well, yes, because I know Justin Trudeau, and I have had many meetings with him explaining the facts of the matter of uh, what bitumen can and can't do, and I find it I find it really uh, distressing because I, I do maintain friendships across party lines, and this decision is massively cynical. This is public money in the billions of dollars that could be spent immediately on green energy projects to create many more jobs and to avoid increasing greenhouse gases at a time that we've been shown to be failing uh, the the commitments we took in Paris in 2015 when Justin Trudeau announced to the world that Canada is back. Uh, and I'm afraid it feels like Harper is back. What do you make of Andrew Scheer's climate plan that he just released? I'm very happy to see that he's committed to bringing in energy efficiency and the eco-energy retrofit program. I don't know why he's slated it as only a two-year program. We need to do much more than that. But I, I plan to read it in detail with interest. And I do keep an open mind, although I think we, we set the bar with our mission possible. That's an aggressive climate plan to make sure that we um, protect every job and at the same time, stop using fossil fuels entirely by the year 2050 uh, and by 60% less by the year 2030. And that's where Greens will, throughout the election, continue to bring people back to the reality. What does your plan do to the global atmosphere? And if it's if it's not sufficient to avoid those levels of climate catastrophe that threaten human civilization, uh, then they're not good enough. Let's bring in Pierre Polievre. He's an MP for Carleton, five-term member of Parliament and uh, the Conservative Shadow Minister of Finance. What is your reaction? Is everything on track from your perspective now? 
this is the second time Justin Trudeau has made an announcement that he uh, will allow the pipeline to go ahead. But of course, uh, last time he failed to properly consult with Indigenous people, and, he, and even after the court asked him to go back to the drawing board, he took about four or five times longer than he needed to to do that. The reality is Canadians want pipelines. The polls show it. The Prime Minister knows it. So he's going to pretend that he wants pipelines too until the election. And then after the election, he will find a way to deep-six this project. He'll find an excuse. He'll find a reason. Uh, there are still dozens of permits that have to be obtained before a single shovel can even go in the ground or a single inch of pipeline can even be installed. And Trudeau will find an excuse in one of those permits along the way to block this project because he is ideologically opposed to the oil sands. He says he wants to phase out the oil sands. And the only way to do that is to block uh, pipelines. And he's done that very successfully over the last three and a half years, having killed the Energy East pipeline, the Northern Gateway pipeline, and bungled the Trans Mountain pipeline. Um, he has been very successful in his goal to phase out the oil sands, and he will continue to execute that goal if he's reelected. How big an issue do you think the environment will be ultimately in the election? We hope it's a big issue. Uh, obviously, we have, we have a, a better plan than Trudeau. His plan is just to raise taxes. You know, we can put a man on a moon. Uh, we have self-driving cars. We have voice recognition systems that allow us to write uh, without even moving our hands anymore. And yet, the Liberals think the only, the, the most advanced idea they've been able to come up with to save our environment is a tax hike. I mean, it is really pathetic that that's all that, the, that their imagination can produce. And Andrew Scheer will roll out a plan uh, for technology rather than taxes uh, that will bring about the breakthroughs that will save our planet. Pierre Poliev, Conservative Shadow Minister for Finance and Federal Green Party Leader Elizabeth May. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We've all seen the extraordinary pictures coming out of Hong Kong with millions of protesters taking to the streets to demonstrate against a controversial extradition bill that would see the extradition of suspects to mainland China. The fear is that in addition to fugitives, this could ensnare critics of the authoritarian mainland government. Even more extraordinary, Hong Kong's China-backed chief executive backed down and apologized, but this did not stop the movement. Carrie Lam suspended the bill after two large demonstrations, but protesters are demanding she withdraw it completely and investigate police brutality during the protests. Joining Libby this past Wednesday to discuss developments, Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. We're seeing this uh, a generational change. Um, the younger people, we're not, talk, we're not talking about anyone older than eight, 22. We're talking about 18 to 22 group. They've been using all kinds of ways to organize themselves without a leader, and they've been using all kinds of anti-surveillance tools, including not using Facebook, paying by cash, and not buying subway tickets uh, online. And you just you just pay cash when you when you go into the subway, just to uh, avoid uh, detection, surveillance by the Hong Kong and Chinese uh, authorities. And the whole way they uh, organize themselves, even you know, recycling, clean up, and garbage clean up, it's. it's 
quite amazing. And it's very different from five years ago when they did the umbrella movement. At that time, there was a bit of a conflict between the older generation and younger generation. But this time, everybody is working hand in hand. Charles Burton, how unusual is it we did see the chief executive of Hong Kong backing down somewhat? How unusual is that? Well, I mean, it was an apology. Um, The question is really, uh, will this extradition law be withdrawn? Will she agree to investigate the police brutality during the demonstrations in which riot officers used rubber bullets and tear gas, injuring at least 72 people? And, of course, uh, what about the people who have been arrested? And uh, will they continue to define this as a riot as opposed to a peaceful demonstration? And, of course, the, you know, really, um, Carrie Lam should resign because uh, it's impossible for her to regain her credibility as the chief executive of Hong Kong. I think at this stage, the primary concern is that the demonstration should not turn violent. I think there are a lot of, there's a small faction among those young people that Chirk is, uh, is talking about who are calling for escalation of the response. The feeling being that it was only when the people and the police had a confrontation that the government decided to back down on this legislation. And so some young people think that this is a time to engage in more violent outbursts. And that could provide the pretext for the People's Liberation Army troops um, stationed in the former British garrison to be released. And then we'd have a much more like 10 and then 89 situation. So I'm just praying that that uh, cool heads will prevail and that and this will remain a peaceful protest and eventually induce the government of China to direct their uh, Hong Kong puppets to uh, to uh, withdraw this legislation and maintain the commitments of the uh, government of China um, uh, under the under the gen- under the basic law. Charles Burton, uh, are you satisfied with what the Americans their role in this so far? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, we had this thing inflicted on us by the United States, and they've been paying lip service to um, making a few weak statements about uh, how the Chinese government should release Kovrigan's favor. Um, You know, we have the impression that uh, Mr. Trump might raise this matter when he uh, meets with Xi Jinping in Osaka at the G20 at the end of this month. Um, That meeting has now been, I think, more or less confirmed. Uh, I frankly really find it not all that credible that we could get a commitment out of Mr. Trump uh, in the course of his negotiations with Mr. C to to bring up the, the consular case of Kovrigan's favor. And my expectation is that when Mr. Trudeau is in Osaka, that uh, Mr. C's handlers will be making sure that there's no corridor or men's room or or, you know, souvenir photo op encounter between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Xi. I don't think that they will be meeting because the the Chinese government are in an impossible position with Canada. How can they respond to what Mr. Trudeau will want to tell them? Because what they're doing is just completely and utterly without any kind of justification and gross violation of international law and practice. And uh, Chuck, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I, I, I think the best thing we, we can do is to stand um, and, and uh, for our own and also to work with our allies. I think uh, Charles mentioned a, a, a big thing about embarrassing China right now and, and, and China's place uh, in the international arena is going to suffer 
if they make any false move. And that, let's just hope that, uh, let's leave it at that. Anything you want to add, Charles, before we go? I'd just like to send my sympathy to the people of Hong Kong and pray that these demonstrations will not lead to violence and that, and that the Chinese government will, in fact, make the rightful concessions. Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Premier Doug Ford has made some significant changes to his cabinet just over a year into his majority mandate. Ford shuffled his cabinet on Thursday with the most notable change made to the finance portfolio. Vic Fideli was moved out of the right-hand job into economic development and trade, a demotion for the PC stalwart. Lisa Thompson, Lisa McLeod, and Caroline Mulrooney were all demoted to lesser cabinet posts, while Rod Phillips was promoted to the finance portfolio, and rookie MPP Stephen Lecce was promoted to education minister. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by NDP critic Marit Stiles, liberal strategist Bob Richardson, and conservative consultant John McEtitian to talk about the changes. All in all, I looked at the shuffle and I'm I'm quite happy with it. Um, I think it's uh, the premier taking serious steps to uh, write what everybody in the province is aware of that they have done a uh, bad job, uh, uh, dare say terrible job of communicating what they've been about uh, for a very activist, very engaged government. And um, by the same token, it's not like he fired anybody. So everybody who was there who may have got moved around has been given a new opportunity to perform better than they did. And there's been a lot of new people added to the cabinet. I do want to get Bob Richardson's overall take on the cabinet shuffle. Bob, go ahead. Well, look, this has not been to date a particularly serious government. And uh, and it's not been viewed as a particularly competent government. And there is good reason for that. This is an opportunity for them to uh, hit the reset button. For the place that they're in, um, you know, a year into a mandate, their polling numbers are terrible. It usually takes you 10 or 15 years to get to some of the numbers that they're at today. So they really did need to hit the reset button and hit it hard. And actually, to his credit, I think the premier did. There were three ministers that were really underperforming, uh, and he moved them all. And I actually am going to argue that I think he did Vic Fideli a favor. I think Vic Fideli is way more of a salesman. I think he will be great at economic development. And uh, I didn't think he was that great as finance minister. I just didn't think it, it sort of suited his skill set and suited his personality. So I think he'll get an opportunity to, to move forward. Uh, Rod Phillips is a very bright guy. I've known him for 25 years or so. Uh, very successful in the private sector, has done public sector uh, staff work. So he knows stuff inside and out. Uh, he'll also be able to work with other levels of government. So if the premier's office can get over their petty vendettas and, and stupidity uh, and, and fights with the city of Toronto, then, then you know, Rod, Rod's the type of bridge builder that, you know, could work uh, to get things done. And, and you know, there's some other good cabinet ministers that are in there uh, in, in the mix, too, as well. So I think overall he did what he had to do. But his number one problem hasn't been these people. His number one problem is him. And his number one problem is his office. The problem here is not just communications. The problem, uh, the problem here is also been substance, uh, but they haven't communicated very well 
uh, what they're doing and why they're doing it. So that would be my take on uh, uh, on it uh, early at this time. I want to hear from the official opposition now. Marit, uh, what do you think uh, about this cabinet shuffle? I want to hear uh, what, you, what you folks on the opposite bench think about this. Well, I mean, I think that uh, this cabinet shuffle isn't going to mean anything unless uh, changed ministers means changed direction. Um, uh, you know, I, I think moving around the seats at cabinet and, and in this case, of course, adding, I think, 25 percent addition of, uh, of cabinet. Positions. Right. We've gone from 21 <laughs> to 28. Yeah, which is quite significant, especially at the time when they're asking other public servants to take a a bit uh, less. Um, but, you know, to me, what what we've seen over the last year is that the priorities of this government are not um, are not connecting with people. People are paying the price. They're not happy about it, whether it's cuts to health care or uh, classrooms. And and unless this new cabinet absolutely changes direction, um, I got to say, I, I think it's just a whole lot of a whole lot of nothing. I mean, it's obvious to me that some ministers have fallen out of favor with the with the, the premier. Um, but on the surface, I don't see much hope for the kind of change that we need uh, to get Ontario headed in the right direction. John McEtition, your message uh, as we wrap up this segment. Uh, just to say that, you know, exciting times, right? Um, you know, we could be in a very worse place. We, I think every, Bob and I agreed, and I think everybody will, that the premier saw that uh, things weren't going where he wanted to for what, whoever's fault or responsibility. And the bottom line is we got a premier a year in, his first time being uh, in the provincial legislature, let alone being premier. And uh, we want to all wish him well that uh, he gets a right in the second year moving forward. If not, uh, it becomes a very interesting time after that. John McEtition, conservative activist, political consultant and president of Bradgate Research Group. Bob Richardson, senior counsel to national public relations and longtime liberal strategist and NDP education critic Marit Stiles. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. There is brand new information and vital news for those of you who are waiting for hip or knee replacement surgery. The Canadian Joint Replacement Registry Annual Report says the demand for hip and knee replacements continues to increase by about 17% over the past five years at a cost of $1.2 billion. Joining me to break down the numbers this past Thursday, Nicole DeGia, Manager of Joint Replacement Registry, Patient Reported Outcomes and Experience at the Canadian Institute of Health Information. Hip and knee replacements are the second and the third most common surgeries performed in hospitals in Canada. And um, I don't think it's surprised. It seems like everybody knows somebody who's had a, a joint replacement these days. No, absolutely. Um, specifically, uh, are, are, I mean, we can more or less surmise that this is because of the aging population, the aging baby boomers. Definitely the uh, demographic um, shifts are playing a large rise in this. Um, even with this, with this, um, there are wait times as well for um, these procedures. And um, health systems across uh, the country are trying to meet this demand and so um, trying to find ways to, um, to add more opportunities to have these uh, procedures. Uh, tell us about uh, repeat surgeries. You have some stats uh, for those people who've had hip and knee replacement surgeries and then have had to go back into surgery uh, within five years. That's right. Um, these 
surgeries are intended to last upwards of 15 to 20 years um, before needing to be replaced. Um, However, what we're seeing is uh, last year, there were about uh, just under 10,000 repeat or revision surgeries in Canada. Some of them um, warranted, but some of them early revision, so needing a repeat surgery within just a few years. And this costs our healthcare systems uh, about $163 million in inpatient costs alone. Can we get from that, uh, and there's an 8%, 7% increase in hip and knee replacements um, that need to be re-performed. Uh, can we get from that that they weren't done properly in the first place or that the patient didn't adhere to warnings and cautions after they had the surgery? Yes, it's um, unfortunate there isn't one single, you know, cause for why these repeat surgeries um, are needed or how they could be avoided. I mean, generally what happens is there's implant loosening um, or another reason that's very largely preventable is infection. Um, so there certainly are a number of sort of surgical and clinical factors um, and these other hospital factors and patient factors that could go into um, why these revision surgeries are needed. Can we talk a little bit more about the demographics of the people who get knee and hip replacement surgery um, in terms of their gender and uh, and specific age so we can see where we fall into the, the categories? Um, certainly. Well, generally, you, you find kind of an older population, the hip, um, than the knee. And um, so what you what we're starting to sort of see is the you know the baby boomer population having a rise in the knee replacements. Um, and I think with an earlier shift in demographics um, or people needing these knee these replacements earlier, you'll see eventually in somebody's lifetime they will need a, rev- a revision surgery um, in the natural course of a lifetime. Um, this is across both uh, both sexes as well, um, with more females tending to need um, more hips, but more evenly split for knees. But then um, evenly split, okay. Uh, but in terms of having to go back in and have the surgeries done again, how does that break down for men and women and uh, age groups? Um, we're not seeing right now um, kind of a, you know, a, a change in terms of uh, sort of differences by sort of age or sex in terms of who needs to have it redone. Um, I think Overall, the focus on um, the fact that there are so many revision surgeries or early revision surgeries taking place, I think that's the main kind of area of focus because um, these are much more complex surgeries, um, very complicated, longer recovery, 80% cost, um, longer, almost double the hospital stay compared to the primary. And from a patient's perspective, it's a very poor quality of life considering you've already got through years of pain, had the initial surgery, and then have to go back and have an early surgery again. Nicole, would it be fair to say that uh, a lot of what leads to knee and uh, hip replacement surgery, uh, obviously the age is is a factor, but specifically osteoporosis, uh, that is a big issue for women. Uh, You've got it right that, um, well, osteoarthritis, it's in, in general for both men and women, are the large driver for why these hip and knee replacements are occurring. So, so really, sort of the best, um, best that patients that we can all do, um, is to maintain a healthy lifestyle and keep mobile as possible to, you know, delay or reduce the need for requiring these surgeries in the first place because they're really the last resort after advanced stages of osteoarthritis.
That was Nicole DeGia at the Canadian Institute of Health Information. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. John in Toronto phoned to say he's a fan of Green Party leader Elizabeth May because he says she doesn't play politics. We do need pipelines coast to coast to a point. Um, we shouldn't have any oil coming into Canada, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, whatever. We shouldn't. We should not. I'll be honest with you. I really like this Elizabeth May. Uh, I think she should get together with the Conservative Party because both parties don't lie and everybody else does. Trudeau keeps on changing his mind on everything. I mean, he's he talking green and then he buys a pipeline and then I don't get this guy. I mean, it, it just... Votes. I think that's all he wants is votes and taxes. Ron and Guelph phoned to say he thinks the provincial PCs have executed their message poorly. I drive a school bus and I can see it every day. Um, it says these are the teachers are uh, passing on all the messages they got. The parents are all in a dither uh, and everything else. The uh, conservatives have done a terrible job of communicating the reason why they've got to make the cut. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'd like to see them do more of and say, here's what the alternatives are if we don't do the cuts. Sheila in Toronto phoned to talk about the process of going through hip surgery and the positive outcome. I had arthritis eat the ball out of my ball and socket in my hip, and I couldn't walk. And they did hip replacement. It went very well, and they had me up that night, and I went to a real stringent rehab center and it was absolutely wonderful it was the best thing i could have done i worked very hard for three weeks i went home and i've not had any problems since then but it was something that had to be done and now fight back's knockout call of the week There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ivan in Milton, who is a caregiver for his wife, who is in hospital and living with dementia. Ivan spends every afternoon with his wife to make sure she's being fed and cared for properly. There's just not enough people in the system taking care of these seniors with strokes and dementia. People talk and talk and talk. If those people would get their hands dirty and go and help, it'd be fabulous. The big kahunas have got to get more people helping, hands-on, not talking about it, not sharing what we're going to do. It's now. We're in the now. I can't remember how many people are waiting for care homes right now, but it's in, it's in the hundreds or in the thousands. They're talking about the future. The future. We're, we're in the now, Libby. It has to happen now. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham.